How do you distinguish yourself in a population of people who all got 1600 on their SATs? I didn't know they take SATs in China. They don't. I wasn't talking about China anymore. I was talking about me. You got a 1600? Yes. I could sing in an acapella group, but I can't Does that sing. mean you actually got nothing wrong? I could row crew or invent a $25 PC. Or you could get into a final club? Or I get into a final club. You know, from a woman's perspective, sometimes not singing in an acapella group is a good thing. This is serious. On the other hand, I do like guys who row crew. Well, I can't do that. I was kidding. Yes, I got nothing wrong with the test. Have you ever tried? I'm trying right now. To row crew? To get into a final club. To row crew? No, are you like, whatever, delusional? Maybe it's just sometimes you say two things at once, I'm not sure which one I'm supposed to be aiming at. dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? This podcast. Welcome to Is It Really? The podcast that challenges popular opinions about movies. I'm Brandon Sharp. I'm Zach Smith-Michaels. I am Mitchell Dupree. And today we're discussing that 2010 biopic, The Social Network, and asking, is a good story more important than the facts? Mitch, why don't you give us a little synopsis to get us started? In 2003, Harvard undergrad and Adidas Sandal enthusiast Mark Zuckerberg begins working on a new project called The Facebook. Although he isn't exactly a people person, this wunderkind's got a knack for bringing people together. Six years later, Zuckerberg, who's now a billionaire, is in the middle of two legal battles. One with three co-eds who claim he stole their idea, and another with his best friend. You don't get to 500 million friends without making a few enemies. So, fellas, let's get started by discussing some other biopics that we could compare The Social Network to. Well, the first thing I'll say is The Social Network doesn't feel boring. The Social Network feels just like a rock and roll roller coaster. Absolutely. Very stylized, fast-paced, action-packed. When I think of biopic, I think of uh, Walk the Line. The Johnny Cash movie, which to me, it, it's it's kind of exactly what you said, Mitch. It's, you know, a movie that you watch in school. It's more of a history lesson. I like recently that more biopics have, instead of, you know, focusing on this entire person's life, we're just going to focus on this one, you know, very important moment. Like uh, Selma did that, and I thought the movie was better for it. Here's Here's what it is. It's a biopic if it says the name of the movie in the in the movie at some point. Y'all can't walk no line. <laughs> That's how you know it's a biopic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought up Selma. That's like when I think of like dope, really good biopics. I think of I think of Selma. Kind of brings up some of the the question we're talking today, like the idea of like does it have to be historically accurate? Like Selma got a lot of heat for um, kind of playing fast and loose with its portrayal of LBJ. Did it? L- yeah, LB- LBJ was uh, pretty on board with some civil rights stuff. What it ended up doing was making LBJ look like he was opposing the civil rights era, um, which is just not uh, factual. So a lot of people were upset by that. So it makes you think, right? Like, do these movies need to be historically accurate? Because for you know a certain generation of people, they're going to watch Selma and be like, well, that's what happened. Sure, yeah. Brandon? I go straight to another Aaron Sorkin picture, Moneyball. How can you not be romantic about baseball? And maybe that's why I like it so much. It's about baseball. It's very near and dear to my heart. I love the duo, the unlikely pairing of Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. It is yeah. amazing. It feels more like a sports movie to me than a biopic in some ways. 
So what is the difference? Does the word biographical uh, have to relate to a person? Can it not I think relate? It means, I think it means like more singular, yeah. I think a lot of people would push back on me calling it a sports movie, though. Is it more of a drama? I mean, you do see sports being played. You see Chris Pratt take a few grounders at first. You see a lot of stuff on television. But the story is about Billy Bean and his attempt to change the game of baseball by uh, making it possible for a low-market team to compete with you know, the really rich teams like the, the Red Sox and, and the and the Yankees. Yeah, the big like line from Moneyball is like, you got 50 feet of crap, then there's us. Like it's like very yeah, it's pretty down to earth. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and that's how like being a lifelong Cincinnati Reds fan, that's absolutely right. There's rich teams, there's poor teams, there's 50 feet of crap, then there's us. Speaking of Brad Pitt, we were talking about uh, historical accuracy. Um, another one of my favorite biopics is uh, The Big Short. It's a great movie, but there's moments where, quite literally, the characters will look into the camera and say, for the record, this isn't how this happened. Yeah, Adam McKay, like, even with Vice recently, he likes to take a lot of stuff that, where the details are fuzzy and just put out that the details are fuzzy. Literally, by saying that, it makes me trust everything else in the movie a lot more. Right. Even a biopic has liberties taken with the script. So, like, where is the line? How are you able to get your picture classified as a biopic? Is it a, based on how much right. liberty was taken? Creation myths need a devil. You guys want to talk about some other Sorkin films for a second? I just looked up Aaron Sorkin's filmography. You know, we have A Few Good Men. We have Charlie Wilson's War. Uh, we have The American President. Three movies based on government. But I, I felt like this was, like, his first kind of his main voyage, if you will, into, like, a, um, into like a mainstream topic yeah i i agree and also i think that this is the first one that the dialogue feels full sorkin to Mm -hmm. me sorkin unleashed um, he found a little uh safe haven in david fincher and almost like if i need to be pulled back he'll pull me back which is why i think molly's game maybe didn't do as well um i feel like it would be hard um, I feel like you're, you are your own worst critic. And also, Sorkin tends to be fairly sacred with his scripts. Um, I just feel like it wouldn't... You need, an, you need that outside contrasting voice. Um, and the, the Fincher-Sorkin duo is... I mean, they're Batman and Robin. When David Fincher got the script, he called Sorkin and had him come over to his house. And he said, read all the dialogue as fast as you hear it in your head. And uh, Sorkin did that, and he was like, okay, here's how long the movie's going to be. So there's, like, stories of him, like, telling the actors, like, you're, you're like, ten seconds, like, you gotta, you gotta speed it up a little bit. Hmm. I think it's a beautiful team-up, because, you know, like, like you guys are saying, you know, Sorkin, one of the best writers, and I think Fincher, one of the best directors right now. Yeah, he's okay. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's fine. Who's who's the guy who directed Big Fat Liar? He's he's not as good as him. <laughs> Will you watch your mouth, please? <laughs> I know cool. that we All said right. on this show we don't want you to feel weird about your weird movie opinions, but Mitch, I hope you're super ashamed. I guess this isn't America anymore because Zach is declared a fatwa on anyone. Name who one other movie. Wait, let, let me take it. I I was about to say name other 
Name one other movie the director of Big Fat Liars directed. Better question. Name the director of Big Fat Liars. <laughs> about why Mark strung the uh, Winklevi along for a while. Why did he do that? I, I always assumed that he did that to get out in front of them, keep them kind of treading water while he was able to jumpstart his own idea. I don't think he he sees them as a real threat, and I don't think he sees the building the Facebook as um, a competition time. If they are irrelevant, why didn't he just... Go back to his dorm room. Tell them yeah, they were. right away. Why didn't he just say, "I'm not interested"? And I think it's left pretty open ended. So I mean, college, eighteen, nineteen years old. Maybe he just didn't feel like getting out of his dorm to go deal with a difficult conversation. Or maybe he just wanted to yeah. avoid confrontation. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I also think um, right. Mark has a chip on his shoulder about fellas who row crew. Um, yeah, that, a lot. You can trace a lot of things back to that opening scene. What does she say about um, guys who row crew? Something. Something. Yeah, she says, "I'm attracted to guys who row crew, like girls who are attracted to cowboys." Yeah, there you go. Here's what the Winklevi did. They're student athletes. Yeah. They get up in the morning and they work out. We have 3.9 GPAs at this school. We pay he... tuition at this school, and we're going to be rowing in the Olympics for this school. Yeah. That's right. They're Olympic athletes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And they do well. Yeah. And yet, they're the bad guys in this movie. They start a business in their spare time. Yeah. <laughs> which gets stolen I from would them. be proud if that were... Yeah, I would be proud if that were my kid and that's how he conducted himself. Yeah. Showed a lot of restraint waiting that long to take the lawsuit. Mark probably feels like the help to them in some way. They, one of the Cameron or Tyler, they say excuse me for inviting you in, and he says, to the bike room. And so they have this idea that they need him to do all the work for. I was going to say, they do think very highly of themselves. Like, our introduction is them, like, beating everybody else at rowing, and then they're like, you know, how can we make this fair? Yes. But at the same time, though, as we've already said, you know who else thinks very highly of themselves is Mark. Yeah, something that we that is easy to get lost is like everyone around Mark is also kind of the best at what they mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Mark is just that brilliant. Yeah. Everyone is in Harvard. In this movie. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess <laughs> when you, when you look at it that way, but no, I, I don't, I, don't I guess that's think. the difference between Harvard and Wright state university <laughs> in Fairborn, Ohio. So he paid the yeah. twins and their friend and 65. The and they signed a non-disclosure. As Rashida Jones puts it, you say one unflattering word, you own their wife and kids. That's an element of the law system that we don't see as often. You know, people sitting around at desks, like, having those uh, conversations. Well, it's a way of keeping it from becoming a courtroom drama, I feel like. We have the courtroom dramas in excess. It's kind of less rules in a deposition. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, you know, it's a little more free That's a good point, um... More freedom for free talk, however you want to put that. Mm-hmm. Crosstalk. And crosstalk, outbursts. Mark probably would have wound up in jail if mm-hmm. they had been in a courtroom for just some of the outbursts. Once it enters an actual courtroom, their trial law has, I don't know, at least for me, like this kind of like dignity yeah. inherent to it, this sort of, um, you know, solemnity. Whereas depositions are a little bit 
there's a nastier connotation to them to me. It's about money. Uh-huh. Right. Right. Depositions uh, are about the dollars and cents of it. And I love how the movie ends where she says, you know, essentially now they go and get a steak. Right. And they'll come back after dinner with uh, really the contract for you to sign the, the, the money. Right. Yeah. You know, here's what. Yeah. Here's what you're going to pay. Because uh, this this isn't about the law. Uh, this is this is about you know PR. This is about and that's a good point. He still thinks he has a case at that point. He's trying to explain how he's innocent in this, and, and they're like, it's not about it's not about that. And she also tells him like, you don't want to get in front of a jury because you are unlikable. <laughs> right, right. Like she says that to him. She's like, they consider things like hair, dress, likability, and well, he's an he's an elitist jerk. <laughs> he he calls them farm animals. Right. How do we root for him after that scene? I hate to say it. Do you know what I think it is? Wow. It's gonna sound silly. I think it's him walking through Harvard while that score plays. We we just see that this is just a lonely guy, just a lonely cold guy who doesn't know how to communicate with people. Him walking lonely to Trent Reznor is before he starts blogging about his exit and calling her a bee. Oh, exactly. And talking about her cup size. Right, right, right. That's when, that's when he loses me for about 45 minutes. Which character in uh, the social network would make the best roommate, and which character would make the worst? Should I go first? I've got a good one here. Please. Go, go, go. All right. I I am all in on Eduardo being the worst roommate material. Whoa. I know one of my favorite characters from the movie. I really enjoy his character. I think Andrew Garfield's great. But let's let's just run through a little list of his grievances here. He writes on Windows. Vandalism. He invites girls over and they light things on fire. Pyromania. <laughs> he didn't invite Brandon. To be fair, he did not invite her over. She hey, showed up. He's reclaiming his time. He's reclaiming yes. his time. Yes. <laughs> We're going to get into it. That's a good point. Uh, he makes a truckload of money predicting the weather. Sorcery. <laughs> And before you guys say meteorology, when's the last time you've ever seen a meteorologist wearing like an Armani suit or, you know, sporting a $500 haircut? I can't tell you the last time I saw a meteorologist. That's another good point. That's another good point. I'm just saying, something else is going on there, something spiritual. He's able to predict the weather. Best roommate, Sean Parker. Have you lost your mind? Yes, maybe. But listen, Sean Parker makes guacamole in his free time. Who doesn't love that? Makes margaritas. He gives gaming advice to their guests. And he answers the door. And. <laughs> How low a bar is this for you? <laughs> and he gets, he gets rid of um, unwanted you know, friends like Eduardo. He gets rid of them. I think Brandon he, having three kids is coming into this. Like, coloring on the windows is a gripe against Eduardo. Answering the door is another. Yeah, he answers the door. <laughs> hey, who wouldn't want to always have fresh guac in the fridge? All right, what do you guys think? I'm going to go best roommate, Brenda Song, Christy, hmm. the girlfriend. Reasons. She is very attractive. 
Reason number two, she helps with the business. She gives them advice at the beginning. She says, anything I can do? She's spontaneous. In what way, Mitchell? <laughs> she drops in. And she, uh, I'll, I'll say this, she really cares about how you're doing. Turns up the heat. Yeah, she does. <laughs> yes, she does. Alright, worst roommate, Eric Albright. <laughs> or Eric Albright. And here's why. In a movie full of, like, very interesting, world-changing people, I think Erica is the most vanilla of them. How long do you think Erica and Mark were dating? Because, like, her dumping him is enough to leave, like, a scar. But also, like, this can't be the first time he's behaved like this around her. I think it's got to be the first time Mark has been able to finagle himself a girlfriend. Mm. He's insufferable. I buy that. Yeah, I don't know. This is like a 15-minute relationship in my mind. I feel terrible for Erica. She's right. Don't punish me for being nice to you. Sure, sure, sure. But as roommates go, <laughs> uh, just a little boring. A little boring for me. Gotta spice it up. I based this on what do I like about uh, the people I live with now versus, you know, other situations. And so for best roommate, I went with Dustin Moskovitz. Here's why. He pops in every now and again, asks how you're doing. He maybe asks you for some advice. Then he goes into his room and, you know, just does whatever he's helpful when you need it but he also you know can go be by himself and hang out and give you some important information every now and again not a problem just a delight to have around you almost forget that he's there and that can be very pleasant i guess it really depends on what you're looking for in a roommate yeah you want a doormat is Dustin involved in one interesting conversation in this movie yeah he's what leads them to having a relationship status on facebook Dustin is like living with a turkey sandwich. <laughs> no thank no thank you. <laughs> Gosh. Well, for worst roommate, I went with Tyler Winklevoss. Because if I have to look at that CGI face all day long, it's gonna be terrifying. Tyler is the one who's more likely to fly off the handle. Like Cameron's the one who's who's more level headed, but Tyler's the uh I want to beat everybody up. I'm better than everybody else. And like living with a guy who's always eating and lifting weights, he's just going to be walking around the house like screaming, doing push-ups, criticizing my body. I don't want to live with I don't want to live with a guy like that. Listen. College athletes are never in their apartments. Ever. Ooh, good you point. You would have the best roommates. They also said that they have girlfriends. Plus they're, um, plus they're involved in that very exciting uh, final, final club. So, my bet is they are never going to be. They're going to be there to sleep. That's it. So that, they sound like great roommates. I didn't think are about that. Are you familiar that. with a, what, what a wingman is, Zach? Because Tyler Winklevoss is the ultimate boat and chum. He would just bring in the ladies. <laughs> One by one. You don't want that in your college experience? You want the turkey sandwich that is Dustin Mo- Moskovich to be a roommate? Brandon, who who did he pick? I can't even remember us so long ago. <laughs> he picked uh-huh. uh he picked Eduardo and Eduardo. Sean. Okay. You wanna jump because, on Eduardo? Because he is said it- Eduardo is a witch. Here's the thing. Eduardo, he'll give you money when you need it. He'll help you out with your projects. He has some good ideas. 
Yeah, and then, Gordo is an ATM. And then he's going to whine. He just whine. funnels money he, out. He, he whines like a I'm baby not gonna steal money the from whole him. movie. He whines and Brandon, whines and you're, whines. you're showing the emotional sensitivity of Mark Zuckerberg right now. You mean he <laughs> wants a friend? Like, he just says, hey, do you want to go out for a drink? I'm buying. It's not whining. Brandon, what was the other reason? I know you said coloring on the, coloring on the windows and witchcraft. He writes one equation. Let's calm and, down here. And I said that he invites people over that light things on fire. Not getting Again, your security I, deposit that's a, back. That's a positive. Well, that's well, a positive. Well, not we a can also jump on Mitch's at the same time because you know who's You're lighting right. the fire? Mitch's roommate. I do that every time I cook, Brandon. Look, you guys are <laughs> sitting on the fire. No doubt Come there. On. Sean Parker. He's going to give mm. me a speech when I ask him for mm. dinner. All right, Brandon, how are you able to overlook he plays with underage girls? That's Listen, like his main recreational activity. That's breezed over. We're not even sure about that. It's not. That, that is unclear it's, at best. It's, it's not. It's a It's a plot point. He's arrested for it. I'm talking about he... Shame on Sha- Sean, not shame on me for calling it out. I'm talking about the Seanathon. He orders all this food. He picks up the check. And then the uh, he's got Mark at the nightclub. That was a... That was a fantastic little shindig. Brandon, you're telling me that you want to hang out with someone who will talk about themselves endlessly for three plus hours? Zach, I'm married. (laughs) Aside from Sorkin's dialogue, why do we care about this movie? I think to some extent, it, it you know, it's Fincher's attention to detail and directing. I think it's also, you know, so many things. The score, that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score is so good. It's maybe my favorite, you know, score in movies. I think that those performances are just incredible. I think it's kind of all of that coming together. And it's a beautiful, um, it's like a nice cake with all of the best ingredients. I would absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie's riveting. It really is. It It's paced incredibly well. It's easy for me sometimes to forget that Sorkin's not the only captain on this ship. And you're exactly right. All we have to do is compare the social network to movies like Steve Jobs and Molly's Game. And it doesn't feel as exclusive as some of Sorkin's later films. Like, Steve Jobs feels very much like it's for fans of Sorkin. And same with Molly's Game. Whereas Social Network seems to be the most accessible Right, and to that point, I think what sticks out to me is the subject matter alone is the most universal. Like, I, I think just when I first saw the trailer, uh, I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, we're finally getting a Facebook movie. Right. In a way that, like, uh, a Steve Jobs, like, everyone keeps telling me how important Steve Jobs is, but I don't, I don't think about him on a daily basis the way that I click <laughs> into Facebook every day. Right. Also, I think... Um... It doesn't get enough credit, but I think Jesse Eisenberg's performance is fantastic. Yeah, this is his best performance. Like, um, I think, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, he's great because he keeps surprising you. I think this role, from a gender perspective, I think it's a a really interesting portrayal of uh, a whole generation of guys who are mad on the internet. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. Also, um, another thing... Is the character dynamics. The stark contrast between Wardo and Mark 
is just so bizarre. You have, you know, Wardo, who's kind of portrayed a little bit like a deer in the headlights in a couple of the scenes. Like, he doesn't know what's mm-hmm. going on, whereas Mark seems like a wolf in sheep's clothing, almost. And you've got Eduardo, who's in his three-piece suits, and he's always got his hair done nice. And we never see Mark in anything that's not a hoodie or his flip-flops. Eduardo has the soft skills. Like, he's he's portrayed as a nerd in the same way that the others are, but... Uh, when they go to the ad pitch meetings, he's able to turn it on and, yes. mm-hmm. you know, uh, sell to someone in a way that Mark's never going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, Mark is who he is. Do we think that's why Mark is the last one standing at the end? Because he's incapable of being anyone else? I definitely know he's not interested in being anyone else. Right. He genuinely does not care for relationships. He, look what he did to his best right. friend. Someone who is mm-hmm. capable of something like that is capable of being the last man standing in a money grab or a search for glory um, or popularity or or fame. and Something like this, Mark is very cutthroat. Cutthroat, I think, implies a little bit more savvy than Mark is maybe showing. I think he is just um, emotionally unattached. I think Mark is actually uh, socially inept to some degree. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, there are some things that happen, just like the interactions with Eduardo when he's trying to be excited about um, getting punched by the Phoenix. And, and Mark is just so, like, rude. It's rude the way he responds. Um, but I really don't feel like he's trying to be rude. Um, yeah. You know, he's just, yeah. he, just, he just is not – he's incapable of being happy for his friend. <laughs> and I almost wonder if at the end of the movie, does Mark even learn anything by the end? Because, you know, you see he goes to Erica's Facebook and sends that friend request. Well, no, I don't think he has at all. Uh, the scene where he blows up and, uh, you know, he just says how rich he is. You know, I don't, I could buy this whole yeah. street at this point. A big angle in this movie is he's the youngest billionaire ever. He has all this power uh, and he shouldn't. It's false bravado and, and grandstanding. Ultimately, it's empty. Who cares? I think that's what I think like they didn't you're not in the club I think that's what it's about honestly at the end of the movie he's not happy he is not happy like I feel like this is all about a search for happiness if I can get one more school one more country one more continent Mm. Um, it's it's never going to make him happy I see it as kind of a thing where he's that's him saying like you know stop talking about your dad's money because I have power now too well, I think you're both right. I think uh, his intention is to show his power, uh, but Brandon, you're right. It's revealed to be empty, right? Uh, because this is a common uh, theme in stories about like class mobility. Mm. Uh, someone from Marks, where he starts, you know, he wants to be a part of the upper crust too, uh, but it's not just about money. It's never going to be just about money. Mark will never have the family. He will never have the looks. He will never have uh, the things that har- make a Harvard man a Harvard man. Yeah. Uh, so no matter what he accomplishes, it's never going to be enough to right. be a part of mm-hmm. those clubs. And also speaking to accomplishments mm-hmm. um, and the and the quest for power that Zuckerberg goes on, another thing to speak to the direction of the film, um, if you watch the scene where Sean calls Mark after he's been arrested and you watch the camera work in that scene, it starts off where Mark is on one side of the camera and then when it cuts to Sean, Sean is on the other side of the camera. Whereas during the conversation, they like both gradually switch sides to show the audience that like a power shift has been made. What did you guys think about that? 
now he has to grow up. Now he has to be the responsible one. I'll make the call. I'll figure out what we do now. I'm letting go of, uh, and that's, that's a part of, uh, growing up for all of us, right? Like where you have to let go of those friends who are bad influence. Sean's bad influence for the company. I'm going to have to cut him loose. Uh, and this isn't how I'm, I think the significance of the business card is he's saying, this isn't how I'm going to do things. It's Mm. not how I'm going to do business. I'm going to be a grown up. Right. Another thing that always struck me is how many different things Sean got Mark to do. Um, the big one being sending him up to the CEO's office to give him the finger. And I, and I realized that it ended up helping them in the long run because the, the man was impressed by Mark. But Sean had no idea that's what the outcome would be. He legitimately wanted to give this man the finger, so to speak, and have Mark walk out like, look where I am now. Um, Sean burns a lot of bridges. Eduardo is approaching this like they're building a company. And mm-hmm. and Sean is approaching mm-hmm. this like they're building a, a tech fad or a, you know a Silicon Valley startup. And... He obviously has more of a, a handle on this type of thing. There isn't a company there. It's just a, a technology. It's a tool. It's a platform. That's all that exists. And the investments they rake in, it's uh, really representative of kind of the new school way of thinking during that tech bubble of, uh, you know, uh, idea first mm-hmm. uh, and then everything else after. <laughs> I think uh, one of the first things we should maybe consider when talking about um, the costs and the benefit of uh, playing fast and loose with history is uh, what is the piece of art or the movie trying to accomplish? Uh, So we brought up Selma earlier. Uh, I think Selma is a great example of uh, twisting the historicity a little bit. made the uh, message, the central like theme of the movie stronger, and I think what it brought into the world was overall a good thing. Um, but I also do think we need to consider um, how much uh, the piece of art is expected to be historically accurate. Like someone who watches Selma, I think expects it to be pretty close to uh, what went down. If I'm watching a movie like Social Network, I think my expectations are a little more relaxed. So it's important to think about who's being affected by the changes to history. Yes. Uh, uh, I think, like, if we portray Mark Zuckerberg in a way that's a little bit unflattering, I'm okay with it. He's a billionaire. Right. Whereas a movie like Green Book that writes out, you know, the the actual story of, uh, you know, one person who doesn't have power and their family, I think that's a little bit more detrimental. Right. So it's worth noting. Is a good story more important than the historical? I think so. Uh, I don't go to the movies uh, expecting it to be a history book. Go to Wikipedia for that. The ultimate goal of a movie is to entertain and make money. Now, I absolutely believe that when you are dealing with sensitive topics in, in history, like the Civil Rights Movement or um, something like that, you do need to be careful. You absolutely do need to um, take into account how your movie's going to come across and how you will be affecting public opinion. I do believe it is is very important to um, stick to the story as much as you can, but also entertain. Dress it up, um, make it entertaining, and... 
create something that makes people want to attend the movies? I think it all depends on what you're promising your audience up front. At the beginning of Social Network, you don't ever see the words on the screen based on a true story. Whereas you look at a movie like Green Book, which has come under some fire for being historically inaccurate, that one says, based on a true story. You know, Argo got into a little trouble because they said that the movie took some liberties. We really, I think, start to um, take more interest in liberties taken when the movie comes out and says, hey, this is the true story. And I think a film like Social Network and a film like Molly's Game and other Sorkin pieces and similar movies in that vein, their goal, like you guys have both been saying, first and foremost, is to tell a story. And I think that sometimes there's sensitive topics. And I think that sometimes there's um, elements of stories that are just flat out untrue that make it into movies. So I think that you can take liberties and you know you can change elements of the story it all depends on what you're promising your audience well that's going to do it for us thank you for joining us for our episode on the social network and if a good story is more important than the facts if you have a minute like us on facebook instagram or twitter we can be found at the is it really podcast and give us your opinion we would love to know how you feel about our episodes and any weird movie opinions you may have and don't forget subscribe on itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and if you're feeling good please give us a rating and a review we would really appreciate it and we'll see you next time